Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. Patty Poppy started a new job as CEO of Pacific Gas and Electric in 2021, after the company emerged from bankruptcy for the second time in two decades. And Poppy's got her work cut out for her. She leads a company that's lost a lot of trust from customers who are now footing the bill for PG&E's efforts to adapt to the threat of more wildfires. So today on The Bay, Poppy sits down with my colleagues Scott Schaefer and Marisa Lagos of the Political Breakdown podcast to answer some tough questions as the leader of California's largest public utility. Stay with us. up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Well, before we talk about your current role, I do want to go back. Um, you grew up in Michigan. I think your mom was a school principal and teacher. Your dad was a nuclear engineer. 
And I mean, this is a very big job in an area that hadn't does not has not historically always had women leaders. I'm curious, like how your parents jobs and your upbringing informed your career path. Oh, well, that's a great question. You know, I always would I always say my dad taught me how to be an engineer and my mom taught me how to be a leader. She was a great school principal. We all know that uh, schools are such important places in the lives of so many people. And she was a great principal and a great leader for her teachers. So I got to see her do that. And that was always inspiring to me. Well, and as Marisa said, you were probably found yourself being the only woman or one of the few women in rooms, whether it was in the corporate suites or even in some of the uh, undergrad and business school and post-grad uh, classes you took. You took some really male-oriented male kinds engineering? of industrial engineering. Yeah. I mean, GM. What was yeah. that like? What did you learn from that? What difference did it make f- to have you in the room at those times? Well, since I had six sisters at home, I probably had plenty of women in my life <laughs> oh my <gosh. laughs> telling me wow. what to do. I was the baby, so I got lots of instruction, let's just say. Uh, but I think growing up in automotive as an operator, as an engineer, you know, my dad... Um, uh, really wanted me to be an engineer. He inspired and encouraged me to do so. Uh, none of my other sisters had been engineers, so I was sort of his last, last, last ditch <laughs> effort to get one out of the bunch. And so I'm his great pride and joy that way. But, uh, you know, work, growing up in automotive, um, It was an interesting era at General Motors. There actually were more women than you might expect. Uh, Mary Barra is the CEO at General Motors. She and I were contemporaries. She was a little bit ahead of me, but um, we had a lot of other really amazing women in operations. And so I grew up not actually thinking it was that strange. Mm. Uh, In fact, I felt like it was... um, very well received. And and maybe in some ways it was an advantage because people wanted to have more diverse leadership. And so maybe I got tested a little more early Mm. and and pushed further and faster and, um, you know, was able to deliver when called. And so uh, I feel good about uh, what General Motors prepared me for uh, professionally. How did you make the leap into energy? You went to DTE Energy and then CMS. I think they're both also investor in utilities in Michigan. That's right. That's right. My Well, my dad actually worked for uh, Consumers Energy, CMS Energy. Oh. So he retired from CMS Energy, had done built nuclear power plants around um, uh, the, the country. And um, so I was familiar with energy, but had been in automotive. And really, at, at General Motors, we had to move around a lot. And I had young children. And that's one of the advantages of working for uh, a, an energy company or a utility. We don't have to move. And so my husband and I made a, you know, a family decision to settle in Michigan with our family and, and raise our daughters. And so uh, we, we really made a personal decision that ended up being a really exciting professional move in the long run. Had I known, I had no idea yeah. at the time. So you ended up transitioning to PG&E. Uh, you were hired uh, roughly 2020. Um, and, you know, that was a time when the company was still, you know, in bankruptcy, emergency, um, emerging from bankruptcy, dealing with the aftermath of some devastating fires. What made you think that's the job right. that I want? <laughs> Super easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did feel like I could help. Um, I watched from afar what was happening here in California and specifically for PG&E, such an iconic company after everything the company had been through and the the customers and our communities had been through. I felt like PG&E really needed an operating 
oriented leader. And I got a lot of calls. A lot of people called and asked me to consider taking the job. And the first several calls, I was like, no, no, no. You know, I'm, I'm in a great place in my hometown, I lived next door to my sister and next door to my dad. There was no reason for me to mm-hmm. move. But then as I really considered the seriousness of what was happening here, I I truly felt compelled to come and make a difference. So it sounds like you wanted the challenge because one of the things like prepping for this, I'm counting them up. I mean, before you arrived, the company had pled guilty or been found guilty of 90 felony counts and faced more. Like that feels like a bit of a red flag. I mean, (laughs) 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 what was your thought in terms of like what you could bring to the table that might be different? Yeah, well, I knew what it meant to run a, a very strong, ethical and safe company. And I knew it was possible for PG&E, too. And what I know is that the people who work for PG&E are not criminals. These are not bad people who set out to do harm. The people, the kind of people who are attracted to a utility and the kind of people who are attracted to PG&E are your neighbors, your friends, your family that set out to have a career at a company where they know they can make a difference in their hometown. And I wanted those people to feel valued and respected again. Can I push back? I mean, yes, the line folks, I think, are all members of our community. But I mean, this is a company we were both there on the scene when San Bruno blew up, right? Mm -hmm. This natural Mm -hmm. gas explosion. And that was just the first of many investigations that found shoddy record keeping, lying to regulators, covering up things in order to maximize profits. Like, Mm -hmm. can you say that everybody really had the community's best interest in line historically? Yeah, so maybe I'm I'm talking generally. There's always the risk of uh, bad apples, for sure. And I guess maybe what I'm saying is that I knew that a company like this could be run well and that could be trustworthy and um, that with the right kind of leadership and the right kind of focus on what is happening on the ground every day, not distracted by, you know, what's new and interesting in the globe, but really focus on what's happening here today. This company could be really important for the clean energy transition, for the ambitions of the state and the ambitions of the globe to thwart the effects of climate change. This company is essential to California's ambition in the world's I mean, we have uh, no forecast. Choice. We have no choice. <laughs> right. we, we have to pay you guys no matter what as people well, who live in this region. <laughs> you, you said a moment ago that uh, you thought that PG&E could be an ethical, ethically run company, which mm-hmm. suggests that there were things that happened before you got there that weren't so ethical. What, what were you thinking? Well, you know, I don't, I wasn't here. And so it was very hard for me well, to- Well, you must have looked at that well, pattern, right, before you took the job. I mean, I saw- the results of a a lot of things that contributed to the outcomes that were so devastating to so many. And I knew that that did not have to be our future and that did not have to be the reality for the citizens of California who are served by PG&E, that we could be a force for good. And so that that is really what I have been relentlessly focused on since the day I got here. My focus is on making sure that we are trustworthy, that we are honest and ethical and safe and that we are doing what is necessary every single day to make it safer. Can I ask about the very structure of investor-owned utilities? Mm -hmm. As somebody who did not come from a business or energy world, as I have covered, and I've covered PG&E and a lot of these tragedies for the last 20 years, why should a public utility be publicly traded? Like, why should something that we all rely on 
be subject to the whims of Wall Street, the desire to, you know, make shareholders quarterly earnings reports. Yeah. And and isn't that in itself a conflict? Yeah, that is a great question. And I will tell you, when I left automotive uh, and went to the energy industry and I was I was running power plants, I had the same thought. I thought, wow, we why is it where we need to make a profit here? Shouldn't we be doing like our public good? And then the more I learned and the more I understood, particularly the business model where we have to attract uh, huge sums of capital to invest in the infrastructure because customers don't pay for that every, they don't pay for it real time. Customers make a mortgage payment, if you will, on all of the assets, but we have to get the money from uh, the capital markets. Mm -hmm. And so what I learned is that investor-owned utilities actually do have to compete. We have to compete for capital. And when we compete for capital, we are benchmarked like crazy. Wall Street actually is a very important leg of the stool to make sure that we do good work. And when we don't do good work, Wall Street exits. And so the fact that we have to attract capital actually helps create some real tension around our performance relative to our peers. And I can tell you, they rack and stack us. And PG&E was at the bottom of the list. When you say when performance, I though, does that mean financial performance? or? Well, I think you might be surprised. Our investors recognize that there's a virtuous cycle. It starts with serving customers. When you serve customers well and you keep the system safe, then regulators are more apt to be able to approve the things that you need to invest in, that that's when the investor gets their return. But they know if you lose trust with your regulator, you lose trust with your customers, you're not going to get easy yeses and and follow through and, and support for your ambitions. You know, the, the company, of course, went into bankruptcy, which is a way of restructuring debt. And, you know, I, a lot of people see that as a way of, of escaping responsibility mm-hmm. with ratepayers. Uh, in fact, many in Wall Street, on Wall Street, made kind of a killing, uh, some of the hedge funds and others. Uh, you know, how do you respond to that criticism, you know, that uh, the only because real the company, winner of all that yeah. was was the company and, and the shareholders? And the company did come out very similar, right? I mean, they're, it, it's structured the same, at least. Yeah, it is structured the same. And the state did have a, an option. I mean, the state had a choice to split up PG&E or or municipalized PG&E mm-hmm. at that moment. But I think when they looked at all the calculus, the idea of, of breaking up the company actually was not in the best interest of the people that we serve. And I will say that the company was not absolved of the, of the debts in many ways. We're still um, uh, at a, a sub-investment grade. Mm-hmm. Um, we still have to work very hard to attract capital from the capital markets. So there's no doubt, and a lot of investors lost it all. And I want to just clarify one thing. When we talk about shareholders, it's kind of interesting to me because a shareholder at a utility, I want to tell you who we're talking about. We are not talking about the hedge funds. We're not talking about the big fat cats well, we on were Wall for Street. A sm- a small we were period. when we were in yeah. bankruptcy yeah. because they, those guys they know both how, sides. Yes, yeah. they know how to come in and, and make their move. But a good utility, a utility like PG&E, our shareholders, our moms and pops. Heck, you guys probably are shareholders. You might not know it, right. but in your retirement funds, in your 401ks, in the firefighters funds, in the police teachers, funds, yeah. in the teachers, they're invested in utilities mm. and they're invested in PG&E. So shareholders at PG&E are moms and pops. And I want to keep my promise to them too. They've entrusted their life savings to a mutual fund or something and asking for a little return to come back. 
That's what PG&E delivers when we deliver profits. We deliver profits for those moms and pops who are funding the infrastructure that keeps people safe in California. I want to ask about corporate culture. Um, We've been told that your motto is leading with love. And we mentioned earlier, you know, these decimating fires and natural gas explosion in San Bruno, um, felony charges, bankruptcy. Like, what was the morale like when you got there? And how do you change that and potentially the culture of a company if that's needed? Well, culture change at PG&E is the number one priority because it's through our people that we deliver what we do. And there is no doubt that people had um, were shaken about their role in the past, their role in the future. How do they make it right? It's a big entity. What is PG&E? And uh, leading with love is a fundamental tenet that I felt needed to interrupt business status quo. To come in and say, hello, I'm your new CEO and I lead with love. I got a lot of like... <laughs> Uh, reaction. Like, oh, she's from the Midwest. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's from Michigan. But, uh, you or know, yeah, yeah, no, no, the Midwest for sure. And uh, they, they, you know, in fact, I had people say, you know what, you can't say that. You're losing credibility. <laughs> I said, oh, my friends, get used to it. Because I think love is essential ingredient. ingredient. You know, you look at professional athletes, for example. Uh, I'm a huge Golden State Warriors fan and have been for a long time, long oh, before I moved here. Maybe that's why I took the <laughs> yeah, shot. Right. Draymond, Maybe, is. <laughs> Draymond is from Michigan. <laughs> yeah, so. that's true, uh-huh. Michigan State. But, um, you know, I, the athletes very the, and the winning teams, of course, they always talk about how they love their teammates, they love their coach, they love the players. Why is that full expression of joy of the game? Constrained to only professional athletes. Hmm. Why know, can't that be? There we, you we go. Like to talk about that. Okay, <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> you know, but in addition to the joy, or maybe mm. you know, it adds to the joy, uh, are the salaries and the bonuses that a lot of the executives get. It's a lot of money. I think you're uh, you make fifty one million. I think uh, per year. No, 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 no. That no. was that was a one time make whole. I had already earned that money at my previous company, and the only way I wasn't going to leave that on the table to take the job. So okay. they paid me what I had in made. In 2021, yeah. Okay, was, yeah. but there was also on the table, I think, $188 million in raises and bonuses for executives at a time when, you know, so many terrible things were happening. And I think a lot of people on the outside look and say, where is the accountability? Why do people working for companies that are either, you know, financially not doing well or doing bad things, uh, you know, in out in the world as, as you know, with the wildfires and so on, why are, why are people getting rewarded? Well, um, I will say this. To attract talent, there are market rates for leadership, and and people can work a lot of places. When I joined PG&E, the entire executive team was vacant. So there was no one there making money off what had happened. They had all been fired or had quit. I had to hire an entirely new team. I searched the entire world and the country for the best and brightest leaders, and I have to pay them to come. And they left good jobs. They did not need to come. There's a market rate for talent, just like there's a market rate for athletes, just like there's a market rate for great radio broadcasters. It's not the same as athletes. Nor is mine. Nor is mine. But, you know, I think that, that this idea that, that to invest in leadership is essential to turning the company around. And so to invest in leadership, there darn better be a return on investment for customers and for our um, 
uh, co-workers to have the right leaders in place. Well, I want to talk about customers. We just saw uh, approval of PG&E rates to go up for everyone in January. Um, the average is going to be about $30 a month, which adds up over the yes, course of does. a year to hundreds of dollars. Uh, why is this happening? And especially given everything we've talked about, you know, you haven't been CEO forever, but the customers have been paying for the, you know, for a long time. And there's been a lot in the past of evidence of not necessarily investing that many wisely or doing all the things that were promised under previous rates. So what's the case to, to, to and you already made it to the regulators, but to the rate payers that this is justified? Yeah, well, first of all, I when I first got here, I heard a lot of people say to me, oh my gosh, PG&E chose profits over safety. You didn't invest in the infrastructure. Well, I will tell you, the leadership team at the helm of PG&E is very focused on delivering the safe infrastructure that will stand the test of time. That does cost something. The The good news is that rate increase that we requested, and it's a four-year rate increase, we hadn't had one in a couple years. We, we put in for this rate increase. There is some catch-up for investments we've made in hardening the system and making the system safe to wildfire. We've had significant improvement in that area, which I'll talk about. But the idea that over that four years, 2023, 2024, 25, 25 and 2026, the average, the compound average rate increase for each of those four years is going to be around 3%. It just so happens the first year is the biggest bump, and then actually it will come down next year and come down again the next year. There's some catch-up between 23 and 2024 that is embedded in that increase that will get spread back out over time. And that is largely to underground a lot of the wires, uh, the, the That's lines? The, the undergrounding is a small piece. It's a lot. 85% of it is safety and infrastructure, though, investments all over the system. And the undergrounding was a, a small piece of that increase that the the regulators really wanted to see us do more. Could we do more? And didn't want to write a blank check. And mm-hmm. yes, tell us to go collect those dollars before we proved we could do it. I'm happy to report that this year we will have underground 350 miles of line that we have never done that before, almost double what we've ever done before. And for years, we heard that was way too expensive. Mm. So is that is has the technology changed? Is it just we're at a point where that just needs to happen? Two things. One, the comparison to building overhead conductor, which has been the standard, to what we're doing today takes into account all of vegetation management that we're doing today that we mm. were not doing before. PG&E spends $1.5 to $1.8 billion a year taking Trimming down trees. trees. That's a problem. Yeah. California, we need to save the trees. And we need to, instead of investing over a billion dollars a year, invest that same amount in a capital investment, you actually can invest in that undergrounding for less. It is lower cost so than the, what we are doing wrong today. Before? before we weren't doing as much vegetation management, so it wasn't as much of a trade. But today yeah. we have to. Or well, didn't, we're they, gonna... didn't the executives say they were doing it and a lot of it wasn't getting done? I can't, I can't actually count. I don't yeah. know that. I don't well, know that to be true. Another question, though. How much of this, the problem with wildfires and, you know, lines, trees falling, lines mm-hmm. getting, you know, sparking and so on, how much of that can be resolved, do you think, from undergrounding versus new technology or hardening the system, adding resiliency? It is all of the above. And I will say on, on undergrounding, we talk about our 10,000-mile plan. And I sometimes wish I had called it the 9,442-mile <laughs> plan. <laughs> 
because they're very specific miles. These aren't. It isn't an arbitrary ten thousand. These are very specific, high risk miles in the places where the trees are coming in contact with the lines. So in general, how would you explain to ratepayers sort of where we're at? Because I think um, we've seen a, a pretty big increase over the past decade in all of the utilities in California, but we do have some of the highest rates in the country. And I think PG&E's, you know, is it 92% compared to like SoCal's like 89? I mean, it's not a huge, but like, how do you explain that? What are we talking about here? Well, I do think California's ambition to lead the clean energy transition has led us to take um, make decisions in the past to invest in the future, invest in renewable projects, um, invest in, in solar when it wasn't necessarily the lowest cost choice, but it was the right environmental choice. And here's what I think is a very exciting postcard from the future. People's household energy wallet. Let me just call this your one wallet, what you pay for gasoline in your car, electricity, and natural gas. will get smaller as we decarbonize the economy, and the more you transition to electric vehicles, the less you will spend on energy in total. Because electricity is more efficient than gasoline, and it is cheaper than gasoline by a lot. And so transitioning to electric vehicles, how much money a household spends on energy will go down as we decarbonize the economy. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. That was Patty Poppy, the CEO of PG&E, speaking with KQED's Scott Schaefer and Marisa Lagos on the Political Breakdown podcast, which you can find wherever you found the Bay. This episode was engineered by Christopher Beal and produced by Izzy Bloom. The Bay is a production of member-supported KQED in San Francisco. I'm Erica Cruz-Guevara. Peace. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.